I feel like that offer is missing something huge in 1993. What do you think it is? An Atari? I have no idea where you're going with this. I think they should have offered him a cell phone. <laughs> uh, 1993? 1993, it was a... Uh, Maybe car phones. No, no. But there, not actual cell phones. There was a 2G flip phone out by 1993. Oh my goodness. Um, okay. Get well, with the apparently program. this is like a super subpar offer. Then, I mean, they, this yeah. is a pretty big slight. Okay. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey guys, welcome to this week's episode of Pennies and Popcorn, where we are going to be relying on my legal experience a little bit because today's episode is all about the firm. That's right. We had so much fun doing Jerry Maguire last week that we decided we're going to do a few episodes in a row starring Tom Cruise. Yeah, I feel like this is Tom Cruise kind of in his heyday as we're uh, showing him these last couple episodes. I feel like the you know kind of 90s Tom Cruise was sort of where it was at. You're not digging 2020s Tom Cruise? Today's Tom Cruise is a little baddier, I think. I'm pretty sure that that new uh, Top Gun movie is doing okay. Yeah, it is supposed to be good, and I did read good things about like the airplane shots. When we were hiking the PCT, we went through this teeny tiny little town called Ridgecrest, California. Hey, did you know that Tom Cruise went there? Avoid this place at all costs if you can. The one... With like claim to fame that this itsy bitsy little town. Hey, hey has, did you know Tom Cruise was there? <laughs> is that apparently Tom Cruise stopped by some of the local establishments when they were filming uh, the. Like, hey, Tom Cruise has been here recently. Did you see him? <laughs> yeah. It was weird. We very did, weird. We did hear that a lot as we were spending some time in the little town of Ridgecrest. Um, I honestly, I feel a little bit of sympathy for Tom Cruise because apparently he had to spend a lot of time in Ridgecrest. Maybe that is what has gotten him a little bit off in these last few decades. Mm, That could be it. It's enough to put anybody off. That is maybe my least favorite place I've ever been to on planet Earth. Yeah, Yeah. so true. I think that's accurate. Well, Carla, I do hope you have a lot of fun things to share based on your own legal experience. This is uh, definitely... From my perspective, a lot different than what you did practicing law, but maybe there's some stuff I don't know about. (laughs) Well, we are going to give away the plot of the movie in this episode, but I mean, come on, guys, this came out in 1993. If you haven't seen it, like, we don't have that much sympathy. Before we dive in, Carla, there is a huge cast of successful actors in here. Why don't you name your favorites? I have to say, I really, really like Jean Triplehorn. I feel like she's a super underrated actress. But I've liked her in everything that she's been in. Gene Hackman, I mean, he will always be Lex Luthor to me from the Superman movies when I was a kid. So for me, this is my second favorite Wilford Brimley production <laughs> after the commercials where he taught us about diabetes. Uh, yeah, he's definitely the guy from the diabetes commercials, <laughs> as he likes to say it. I think of him as Pop Fisher from The Natural because... Holy cow, did we love that movie when my brother and I, when we were kids, we were fully obsessed with it. Uh, Holly Hunter got an Oscar nomination for her role in the movie. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about Holly Hunter. Yeah, she was amazing in this movie. She's amazing at everything. Totally love Holly Hunter. Yeah, it's quite a stellar cast. Gary Busey played basically himself. Yeah, he pops up, makes a little appearance there. (laughs) Yeah. Ed Harris. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a it's a stellar cast. We haven't even mentioned Tom Cruise. I mean, he's at the bottom of the list at this point. Uh, did you know that Gene Hackman's name doesn't show up on the movie poster because his deal said that his name had to appear above the movie title? But also, Tom Cruise's deal with Paramount said that his name had to appear above the movie title and could be the only name. Drama. For real. <laughs> so Gene Hackman got took his name off of it completely. Oh, wow. And... Uh, Many audience members were surprised to see him when they showed up at the theater. Well, I mean, Lex Luthor is... Uh, it's kind of a big get. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not a bad guy to have pop up in your movie unexpectedly, so... would you? Did you know that they were considering writing that role for a woman and that they wanted Meryl Streep to play it? I did not, but that would have been amazing. I mean, how good could you make this cast? It's kind of crazy. Yeah, yeah. The way I would I would have liked it better if they'd gotten Meryl Streep, but okay. what can you do? Hindsight. Well, there's a whole bunch to cover on this. Do you want to give a little bit of a setup for our audience who hasn't seen the firm in, you know, 28, 29 years? Yeah. So we're going to sort of unfold the plot as we play you the clips. But I think what you need to know at the outset here is that it's about a young hotshot law student, aka Tom Cruise, who is kind of trying to figure out where he's going to go, and he's fielding a lot of offers. Things are going super well for him, which is not surprising. He's top five in his class at Harvard, so. That's right. Yeah, his name is Mitchell McDeer, and he's going to have a lot of opportunities in front of him, and the ones he chooses may not work out as well as he'd hoped. Yeah, so let's listen to our first clip, which is a montage of the many fabulous offers that are being thrown his way. Look, I don't know what kind of offers you've had from Wall Street. Top five, sir, in, in my class. Not the top five percent, I'm sorry, I just... Mr. McDear, we've just offered you $68,000 a year from arguably the leading law firm in Chicago. Is there somewhere else you have to be? Yes, sir, I have a job. I'm just on lunch break. I know you've had a lot of offers. Did you know, for example, that we have 127 clients that are Fortune 500 companies? Hey guys, grab this. Now, look, we'll offer you 74,000. The first-year associate is only 2,000 hours, not the usual 25 or 26 or 2,700. We want you to have a life outside the office, don't you? And if you're a Lakers fan, we have a fabulous box of them. I know there are firms from all over the country that have been up here offering you everything. But with your ability and ambition, there's only one place for you, and that's with All right, our let's firm. stop talking about the ribbon on the package and start talking about what's in the package. One of our partners is an ex-governor, two are congressmen, one is a former secretary of agriculture. Gotta love that jazzy piano in the background. I knew you were going to comment about that. <laughs> okay, so we have just these little snippets of conversations here, but he's getting... I mean, seemingly dozens of offers thrown his way. It feels to me that if you are top five at Harvard, you could get pretty much any job you wanted. And I feel like that's what they're trying to convey. Is that right? I think, well, certainly that is very accurate, assuming you don't have any serious personality flaws or like background issues. If you are top five in your class at Harvard Law School, yeah, you can write your ticket anywhere you want to go. So as I watched this, I certainly thought, well, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> well, I was not top five in my class, nor was I at Harvard Law School. I went to a slightly lower ranked law school, although I went to a pretty good one. I have to say I was ranked 15 at the time I went there. Well, I'm just saying, I don't remember you coming with like 30 offers from around the country, one besting another. <laughs> this feels off. Well, I... I don't want to toot my own horn here. Oh, toot it, Carla. But I, I did have a lot of offers coming my way. So <laughs> I was, um, let's see, 
I think I was maybe in like the top 3% or so in my class. I know I was at the end of 2L year. Well, look at Carla, <laughs> man. I was doing pretty well in law school, especially my 2L year. I really like, I, I did well. Um, my 1L year, I did pretty solid as well, but not as well. Um, but I had a lot of offers coming my way and that's coming from a number 15 law school and not number five in my class, but you know, certainly, certainly in the top 5% is a Tom Crusoe very not humbly corrects this guy who's interviewing him, which I thought was kind of a ballsy move. Um, but yeah, I was like roughly in the top 3% of my class and I had, a heck of a lot of offers rolling in. I interviewed with dozens of firms. She's kind of a big deal. I mean, it wasn't a big deal, but I am saying that I feel like this is extremely accurate. He would have been fielding way, way more offers than I was. And I was also looking very locally. I wasn't flying anywhere. I wasn't going anywhere outside of the state. So he was, and he's like racking up offers all over the place. Okay, so... What I remember about you when you're getting all these offers is you'd only been through one of your three years of law school. You had just broken your hand or your wrist that summer. <laughs> yeah. and had an unfortunate accident where you fell on the stairs. And, I'm uh, so smooth and graceful. Mm-hmm, so pretty yeah. awesome. Uh, and I remember you got your cast in black so that it would look okay with your suits for interviewing. And I yeah, imagine yeah. it was so hot and miserable in the Texas heat doing that. Uh, but I'm sure it was a conversation starter, which is what led to all those offers and opportunities you got. Yeah, I was really fortunate that I fell down the stairs. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to talk to anybody about anything. This is true. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but this was after you'd gone through one year of law school and you had a long time left before you graduated. But in this movie, it is presented like it is late in Tom Cruise's law school career. Unpack that for us. Okay, so very typically, if you are in law school, it's a three-year program. Your 1L year is super important because at the beginning of your second year, what they call it 1L, 2L, and 3L year, at the beginning of your second year, fall semester second year, that is when you are in heavy-duty interviewing mode because the way it typically works is that when you graduate from law school after your third year, you already have an offer lined up from a firm that you did a summer associateship with during the summer between your 2L and 3L year. So in the fall of 2L year, you are interviewing with firms to try to set up a summer associateship where you will go to a firm and work with them for typically anywhere from like four to eight weeks is um, acceptable. It's usually about six weeks. So you've got, you know, like... 12-ish weeks during the summer. Yeah, longer than that, right? Mm -hmm. That's like 15-ish. And you can try to cram in as many summer associateship gigs as you possibly can and hopefully increase your your chance of getting a permanent offer of employment when you're done with that summer associate gig. So the timing for this particular guy seems way off. We see him interviewing seemingly right before he's about to take the bar exam which is crazy late. Like by then, you should have already done multiple summer associate gigs and hopefully had a permanent offer in hand that was sitting there waiting for you as soon as you graduated and hopefully passed the bar exam. So especially from someone who's like doing this well at Harvard Law School, there's no way that he's not going through that standard program. Now maybe any you get into the lower ranked law schools 
it's a lot harder to get those plum summer associate gigs that pay really well. So it would be more believable if he was struggling to find a job at the very tail end of his law school career. But that's not what we see from people who are graduating the top five of their class at Harvard or probably anywhere in their class at Harvard. So the timing of this is just really unrealistic. It makes no sense. Yeah, I have to agree. What my takeaway from that is that first year of law school is kind of everything for your future, right? Yeah, it is. And I actually did a lot better my 2L year than I did my 1L year, which was sort of a bummer because, I mean, I even even so, I still had like really good offers in hand. But if I had done as well my first year as I did my second year, I might have been able to step up a little in terms of the caliber of the firms. You know. could have been like Tom Cruise. It's possible. If I, I mean, I might have been able to look at other regions and do better in other regions. Locally, I was doing about as well as I could do. But if I had wanted to go to New York or Chicago or San Francisco, I would have been in a better position. Okay. What I think is interesting here is he seemingly didn't do those kinds of jobs because he's working other jobs as like a waiter or something at this point in time as like a side job to help pay for his expenses. But as I recall, those summer associate paychecks were strong. Yeah. Right? Like they were quite substantial and you could certainly cover your your cost of living as a student in most cases without needing to pick up a part-time job during the school year with all the money that you got paid in the summer. Yeah, now he may be just trying to pay off student debt early. I mean, we don't know what he did for undergrad. Maybe he's got some undergrad debt. I mean, certainly the paychecks that you get for 10, 12 weeks as a summer associate are not going to be enough you can live to on like that forever. wipe out all of your student debt and pay for the future years of law school that you have left, right? And all of your living expenses. It's not that good, but it is really good money. It's a lot better than working uh, as, as a waiter in that restaurant that he seemed to be. Yeah. So he probably could have been doing other actual legal work. Even as a law student, you can get jobs that will pay you to do legal research, legal writing, and you're not going to be earning as much as you would if you were a practicing lawyer. But again, coming from Harvard, like, your brain is quite valuable. And he probably could have been earning a heck of a lot more doing some kind of legal work just as a law student. Okay. What I thought was weird is he's top five, not top 5%, top five at Harvard Law. And he's interviewing for all of these traditional jobs, but not like a badass clerkship with the Supreme Court or with some appellate court, wouldn't he be a shoe in for some of those opportunities? And he's really missing some career defining year doing that, that that could set him up for whatever he wanted. Yeah, 100%. So a judicial clerkship is a very prestigious thing to get. And it's even more prestigious if you were able to clerk for some of these higher courts, right? So everybody knows the Supreme Court of the United States is the highest court in the land. If you get a job working as a law clerk for one of the SCOTUS justices, you are like a golden child. You are going to be set for life. Firms are going to be falling all over themselves to get you in their doors. They will be throwing gigantic bonuses at you, even into like the six figures of bonuses in today's dollars. Getting one of those positions is just an absolute golden ticket in life. It 
guarantees that you're going to be able to work in academia if you want to. It'll be a huge lookup if you want to work in politics. These are just like really, really powerful positions to have. And he seems very well placed to have a great shot at one of those. So they're still really, really hard to get, even if you're number five in your class at Harvard Law, because the Supreme Court justices can be picky and choosy. And well, there's only nine of them. There are only nine of them. Now they have multiple law clerks. I'm not sure exactly how many each one has, but they're going to have at least like three to five, I think. So yeah, you're looking at... Uh, you know, 27-ish maybe positions that are available every year. But so I should back up a little bit. If you don't know what a judicial clerkship is, it's basically where you work for a judge, usually for either one to two years, and you basically help the judge make these really important decisions, right? You review all of the legal briefing on motions that get filed with the court. You do the research. You actually write the opinions in many cases, and then the judge will edit them or sign off on them. But you basically get to be a federal judge or even a Supreme Court justice behind the scenes. And obviously you're not doing all of it. They're, you know, they're there to provide guidance and weigh in if you think you're doing something wrong. But it is an incredibly wonderful position to get. I was lucky enough to get one, certainly not at the Supreme Court, but at a much lower level. You're no Tom Cruise. I'm no Tom Cruise. Um, But it was an incredible experience, and you just get an insight into what actually goes on behind the scenes in a courtroom in a way that you can't any any other way. It's just impossible. So if you are a law student or thinking about going to law school, I would highly encourage you to set yourself up to get a, a really good shot at getting some kind of judicial clerkship. I don't know what Tom Cruise is thinking because he seems to just have no interest in this whatsoever. Okay. Now he's getting offers from these different firms and they're talking about some of the non-monetary things that they bring to the table, but they also, there were money amounts being thrown out there. What I found interesting was the variability in those price amounts uh, that they're willing to pay him. When you were in law school, I feel like everybody had almost a, they like copied each other's salary structure. There wasn't any collusion or anything, but it, it really felt like all the big firms were paying the exact same amount. Is that Is that right? Well, that's still largely true today, I think. Um, And I think it's been true for a really long time. What does vary is from region to region. So when we're talking about the top big firms in any major market, so we were in Dallas, certainly Dallas would qualify. Um, Houston, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Boston, San Francisco, right? These are going to be like the big cities where you have these big top firms, they pay very, very similar rates. Now, when you go to a smaller market, let's say you want to be in like, oh, I don't know, Memphis, Tennessee, which is going to be relevant to this plot, you are not going to be looking at the top rates that these other big city firms will be paying. So there is definitely variability in the size of the law firm. There's huge variability with that. If you're going to like a small five-person firm in, you know, Fort Collins, Colorado, you're not going to be making the top salary that you could be making at a thousand-person firm in New York City. Okay. 
How do you feel about the 2,000-hour perk that that one firm was offering? Not 25, 26, 2,700 billable hours, but only 2,000. Okay, I'm going to try to go on not too long of a diatribe here, but I have a lot to say about this. So 2,000 hours a year sounds very reasonable on its face, right? That's 50 weeks a year, 40 hours for each of those 50 weeks. That gives you two weeks of vacation and only 40 hours a week. That sounds great, right? It's amazing. You could make like a big lawyer salary working just 40 hours a week and still getting two weeks of vacation. Let me clear this up because that is not nearly as delightful as it sounds. For one thing, you're talking about actual billable time. As an attorney, you are supposed to be quite scrupulous about keeping track of what amount of time you're in the office that you're going to the bathroom, that you're chatting with your coworkers, that you're just sort of generically checking email or like keeping up with legal news as opposed to time that you are actually dedicating to working on a specific client's case that you can bill for all that other stuff you can't. All right. Before you go too deep in billing, because I know this gets your (laughs) blood pressure up and your heart rate high. Save some of it because we got a clip coming where they talk about billing at this particular firm that Mitch McDeer goes to. Let's move ahead a little bit because Mitch gets an offer from a Memphis-based firm, as you teased, uh, Bendini, Lambert, and Locke. And let's hear about what they're bringing to the table outside of that montage we just heard from all those other offers. Bendini, Lambert, and Locke is just a small Memphis firm, 41 lawyers. But we're a large family, so we're careful. Now, sir, you have any questions for us? Do you have a, an offer in mind? It includes a bonus schedule, a low-interest mortgage so you can buy a home, country club membership, and we'll lease you a new Mercedes. I uh, bribed a clerk in the Harvard Law Placement Office for the exact amount of the highest offer, and then added 20%. Mitch, the letter you got from Bendini, Lambert, and Locke was the only one sent out. We want you. Okay. I feel like that offer is missing something huge in 1993. What do you think it is? An Atari? I have no idea where you're going with this. I think they should have offered him a cell phone. Uh, 1993? 1993, it was a... Maybe car phones. No, no. But not actual cell phones. There was a 2G flip phone out by 1993. Oh, my goodness. Um, Okay. Well, apparently this is like a super subpar offer. I mean, this is a pretty big slight. Okay. Uh, The reality is obviously completely the opposite. This is just totally, totally nuts. But Carla, this is Memphis. Come on. Uh Uh-huh. So as I was explaining before, these smaller markets like in Tennessee or I don't know, like Louisville, Kentucky or somewhere in Alabama, like these are just smaller markets. No no offense to any of the lovely people who live in these locations. (laughs) The big high dollar work is just flat, not there. It just makes absolutely no sense that this small firm in a small market is throwing money at him that is dramatically higher than he is able to command in any of these bigger markets, he should be having crazy alarm bells going off in his head. Like, 
what why excuse me what are you offering me that ha- sounds just a house, nice a car a country club membership yeah i mean they're leasing a car for him which i guess is a little bit unclear what does that mean they're just filling out the paperwork on his behalf and then he pays the lease i stayed up late a lot last night thinking about this carla <laughs> I, I think it means that they're just providing it to him I think so, too. They're presenting it as part of the package, so it's not much of an offer if they're just like, don't worry, we'll handle the paperwork for you. They're clearly going to pay at least some significant percentage of it, right? So they're basically giving him a car. They're giving him a low-interest mortgage so he can buy a house. Yeah, I don't know what that is. That is insane. I'm not even sure that that's ethical for a law firm to do, but in any event, it is wildly outlandish and just completely unheard of in the legal community. They are providing him with a country club membership and they're paying 20% more than the highest offer he's had in these big markets where firms are able to bill at a much higher rate than they could possibly bill in Memphis, Tennessee. Can we give this some context? So let's forget about 1993 numbers and think about today's numbers. Like what is, if everybody in the big law space is paying about the same right now, what, what is that? Well, so most big firms are starting salaries for first-year associates at about $190,000 today. Okay, so an extra 20%. Yeah, that it goes as you... So most firms have what they call a lockstep compensation policy, which means as long as you stick around and don't get fired, you will get a raise every year that you're there in a fixed amount. So you can get a bigger bonus based on performance and based on how many hours you bill, but your base salary is going to be locked in at a lot of firms, not all firms, but a lot. So that lockstep compensation will go up to, I think, roughly like three to three fifty at, at most of the big firms. Now, recently, that's after being what, like a seventh year associate or something. Yeah, seventh or eighth year associate. Now, the biggest of the big dogs, so the most prestigious firms in New York, have recently jumped it to two fifteen for beginning salaries for first-year associates. And it goes all the way up to at the top, top firm in the U.S., which is Cravath, Swain & Moore, generally accepted to be like the most high-end law firm in the country. They go up to 415 for their top-level associates before you make partner. And that's pre-bonus. So law can be a very lucrative profession, obviously, But you've got to be Tom Cruise, like in the top five of your class at Harvard, and be willing to put in these crazy hours um, to actually stick it out and make it that long. Okay, so he's getting an offer that, you know, in today's dollars would be what, like $260,000 or something like that, you know, $45,000 more than what the rest of the market is willing to offer like what the top end of the rest of the market is willing yeah, to offer. Yeah, and that's just his salary. And that's all that all, you know, every other firm in the country is offering only to pay a salary and a bonus. They're offering the salary, the bonus, the low interest mortgage, the free car, the country club membership. But no cell phone. <laughs> so it is just completely nuts that this like small regional firm is outbidding the top charge like the firms in the country that can charge the highest hourly rates are just not in memphis tennessee and yet they're paying him all of this money something is amiss okay so you're tom cruise you're in this room they give you this offer you don't get it 
It doesn't make sense. How does Memphis deliver like this? What do you do? Uh, I ask a lot of questions. I demand to know what is the hourly rate that you guys charge that allows you to pay brand new associates this astronomical rate? Exactly what kind of work do you do that's able to command such a high hourly rate? Or the alternative is these guys are billing like crazy amounts of hours. That's the only other way that you can bring in more money in the door, right? Or let me clarify, the only other legal way that you can bring that much more money in the door. So he should be trying to figure out what, why? Like, are you billing that much more? And if so, justify to me this high hourly rate or show me what are the hours that you guys are actually working. So something's got to explain this. I mean, I feel like you're being harsh on Tom Cruise. He doesn't have that like cool piano soundtrack creating a little tension in the background the way that you do in real mm. life. So, I mean, let's hold him to a fair standard. <laughs> um, what I thought was really interesting is that the law school knows how much money he's going to get paid and that they could just go bribe them and, and find out how much they needed to offer. I did know that was a requirement to tell your your school. I mean, undergrad, they didn't there wasn't a form to fill out to tell them how much I was getting paid with the job when I graduated. Yeah, that also seems really bizarre to me. I cannot imagine that anybody is calling up their uh, placement office at the at the law school and saying, hey, I got another offer for this amount. Hey, got another offer for this amount. They would be fielding phone calls all day long. They just don't care. They want to know what job you pick and what salary that pays you so that they can advertise to prospective students Here's the average starting salary of our graduating class. And truly, that's anonymized data, right? Yeah, but they they don't care about each and every offer that rolls in for you. Like, that's just silly. They only want the one you pick. Hmm. Well, but then how do they know? <laughs> they didn't. It's completely crazy. John Grisham, did you lie to us? <laughs> Here's the other thing that's really bizarre about this scene. This firm is telling him that this is the only offer that they're making to anyone. They haven't sent out any other offer letters. Apparently, they haven't interviewed anybody else. That just does not make any sense to me either. Either they need an associate or they don't. And if they do, then they should be putting more resources into making sure that they get that person. I mean, I could believe that they would only extend one offer letter at a time, but surely they'd be recruiting multiple folks. For sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I have open positions at work that I'm trying to hire for from time to time, and... I certainly prefer to cast a wide net. Let's look at the talent that's out there and go see who's the right fit for our organization. And I have to remember that it is a two-way street. It is not merely me saying, I want you. Tom Cruise could instantly be like, nah, dog, Memphis isn't for me. I kind of want to stay on the East Coast, but thanks. Yeah, especially just given the incredible opportunities he's giving up, right? Like we talked about, he is so well positioned to start any kind of career that he wants. He can go to Washington, D.C. and have a really successful career in politics. He can be working on like Supreme Court appellate cases, right? He's got the caliber to get his foot in the door and start doing this kind of really fascinating high-level work. And he's just going to go to some like random firm in Memphis, Tennessee, just give all of that up because they're throwing a suspiciously large amount of money at him. It just doesn't make sense. Okay, well, I think we can move to our next clip here in just a minute where he's considering this, right? He goes down to Memphis, brings his wife, Abby. They're a little bit wined and dined and schmoozed. They meet all the attorneys and 
have that fun experience, which is not unlike what you had as a summer, a summer clerk or summer associate, rather. The law firms certainly took you out and invited me along as your, as your plus one to all kinds of fancy dinners and outings, and they tried to give you a great time and show you how wonderful life would be as a summer associate. Not, not Of course, not what it would be like as a full-time associate. <laughs> uh, but anyway, he's had this interesting experience with this Memphis firm, and our next clip is you know, Mitch and Abby talking about it. Hey, how about it? How about it? Okay, okay. Love Boat Band, the secret recipe ribs, they're a little square maybe. But... I don't mind square, I like square. Weird, I mind. What do you mean weird? Well, here's a quote. Firm does not forbid me to take a job and they encourage children. Ask me why. Because they love kids. Because children promote stability. Want to hear more? <sighs> These are nice people, Abby. These are nice people. Okay, I'm more impressed with it than you are. You grew up with it. Do you know what $96,000 a year is here? It's like 150 in New York. Did you ever think I'd make a six-figure salary? Absolutely. You did? Come on, Tom Cruise. How can you be top five at Harvard Law School and not think you were going to make a six-figure salary, even in 1993? Yeah, it's just mind-boggling to me the just amount of naivete that we see coming out of this guy. Like, he's clearly smart enough to have gotten himself into what is arguably the best law school in the country, and he's knocked the lights out there, but he's too dumb to figure out what his future earnings potential is or to, like, see the giant neon warning signs that are flashing all around him. If only they'd given him a cell phone so that he could Google it. <laughs> I don't think cell phones could Google things in 1993, Robert. Let's, no. Let's I, get our facts straight I think here. the first text message was sent a few years later. Mm-hmm. So, okay, super creepy things that Abby is relaying to Mitch here that he is just shrugging off. She is, quote, not forbidden to work by the firm WTF. What kind of law firm would forbid a spouse from working or have any say or input whatsoever on the family planning of a like a, an associate or what the spouse does for a living? I mean, if that doesn't make your flesh crawl, I don't know what will. I mean, this is a good point. I was I was a little bit nervous when you were looking for big law jobs if they were going to allow me to work. Uh-huh. I'm like, sure you were. Can I? Can we get married? Can this be a thing for us? Because I I do want to work and contribute to society from time to time. And mm-hmm. if they wouldn't allow that, it, it might have been hard. Yeah, it was. But uh, it's it's good to know that Bendini, Lambert, and Locke promotes stability. Right. They right. Uh, they encourage children. Uh huh. They're all about the family values. I was going to say, uh, from the the why the hell does your employer care what your spouse is doing? I've only heard of one case where it makes even a little bit of sense and it annoyed the heck out of me. So at my company, we have a really good insurance program for our employees and they have instituted, uh, it's probably a half dozen years or so ago, a working spouse surcharge because so many of our employees had spouses who were declining their insurance coverage from their own employer to jump on the family coverage that my company was offering. And they're like, Hey, we, we can't just subsidize everybody under the sun. Like if you're not going to participate in the programs that your employers offer to you, we're going to need you to kick in a little bit here. Yeah. Even so we have and, always and that, paid that surcharge because your coverage was still that much better than what 
uh, any employer that I've ever had was offering. But that made me livid. Like, what what is it your business about, you know, my my spouse's employment? But at the same time, I guess it made sense. The, the company self insures basically, so yeah, it's managing costs and. That's a far accountable, but that's way different than. Yeah, that's far. It's less not creepy. forbidden. <laughs> that is dramatically less creepy than what's happening in this movie. I feel like Abby should have just absolutely pitched a fit and said, "No, this is not happening. I'm not going to be affiliated with a firm that is this behind the times, even the 1993 times." So I will also note this firm consists of 41 lawyers, as we heard in the last clip. of them are white. 100% of them are male. They did have that woman once. They had a woman once. And there is a quote from one of the other lawyers when he's talking to Tom Cruise about this. Like, oh, yeah, we had a woman once. And this is a direct quote. She wobbled around on her high heels all over the office. Maybe she had poor balance. Oh, my God. I mean, can you think of anything like more annoying and sexist to say, maybe you shouldn't have made her wear those damn high heels in the first place, Bendini, Lambert, and Locke. Anyway, <laughs> this firm is just giving off like the ultimate creep vibes. It is so Stepford Wives-ish. It is so like, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if they just like all pulled out their white hoods one day and were like, oh, we're also in the Ku Klux Klan. That is the vibe that I get from this whole firm. They should have been running for the hills. Money thrown at them or not, there is no amount of money that's good enough to put up with this level of just like flesh-crawling creepiness. I think my favorite thing that we learn as he's doing this kind of weekend or whatever it is with the firm in Memphis is that of all their attorneys, none of them are divorced. Uh Does that line up with this kind of high power law firm from your experience? Well, so I actually did a summer associateship with one firm where it was almost the exact opposite situation. (laughs) Just about every attorney in that firm was either divorced and single or on a second marriage. And they also coincidentally worked more like the 2,700 to 3,000 hours that we heard referenced in one of the earlier clips. And I mean, that kind of thing is just plain hard on a marriage. There's no getting around it. So um, either they're working suspiciously few hours for these big bucks that they're bringing in the door, or it's really weird that no one's gotten divorced and it feels kind of like you're not allowed to get divorced, even if your marriage is in shambles kind of thing. How do you feel about Tom Cruise's opinion that $96,000 in Memphis is like 150K in New York City? Well, he's right about that. I mean, it's amazing that he's getting an offer for this crazy high salary in such a low cost of living area. But again, it's super unrealistic and it should have seemed unrealistic to him. This is not some like movie magic thing where there's some, you know, great explanation for it. There's a super shifty, shady criminal explanation for it. And he probably should have seen that coming. I mean, this this should not have... It should not have shocked him that the firm was ultimately engaged in criminal behavior. Okay. That is a little bit of a setup for our fourth clip, but we kind of advance really far forward in the movie. For people who haven't seen this in a very long time, Carla, can you give a rundown of this criminal activity and and what, what Mitch picks up on? Yeah. So essentially the firm is representing the mob, 
which I should note is not actually a crime in and of itself, right? There are plenty of lawyers who represent criminals. They're called criminal defense attorneys, right? And they're not doing anything wrong by representing those folks. But what Bendini, Lambert, and Locke is doing is helping them to launder money. That's basically the gist of what's going on. They do have some legitimate clients and bill some legitimate hours. I think it's roughly 30% is what they say in the film. But 70% of their revenue is coming from these criminal enterprises where they are charging really high rates because it's dangerous criminal work, right? And they're able to charge a premium for it. And all the attorneys are aware of this representation of the mob and helping them through what they're doing. And if you, they don't obviously tell you on day one, but eventually you get introduced to this concept. This is why they have Wilford Brimley, head of security in the firm. (laughs) Uh, Because if you decide that you aren't cool with what they're doing and you try to leave, they're not going to let you. They've had four attorneys die suspiciously within the last few years all who were attempting to leave or, or break away or be an informant with the FBI or somebody else. Yeah, so. you do not leave Bendini, Lambert, and Locke unless it's in a coffin. So that's fun. Um, yeah, Mitch finds all of this out through a little bit of sleuthing and a little bit of like strange things that happen. The FBI approaches him, and they want his help to put a stop to all this mob activity. So effectively what they want from him is to turn over all the client files that they can use to figure out exactly what's going on in this criminal enterprise and put these mob bosses away. So let's play this next clip where it's Tom Cruise talking to the mob bosses, the Moraltos, about what he has learned. It's very awkward. I'm afraid my firm has behaved in an unethical manner. It seems that we, Bendini, Lambert, and Locke, the entire firm has been engaged in a, well, a uh, conspiracy. We've been overbilling our clients, in some cases, massive overbilling. I assure you, I had no idea any of this was going on when I joined the firm. Well, I feel I have to report this criminal behavior. Okay, well, let me explain what's going on here. So Tom Cruise is going to these clients and saying, hey, the firm's been overbilling you, which it has. He has discovered that the firm has been systematically billing like three to four hours more for every maybe like 20 It looks like it's a 10% overbilling, give or take. Yeah, so they have been doing this on a regular basis across the board with all of their clients, including the criminal ones. And Tom Cruise has decided that he is not going to help the FBI get the real bad guys, the mob bosses. Well, I wouldn't either. Do you want to keep your head attached? It's dangerous for sure to turn in these, you know, murderers. But what he is willing to do is help the FBI to catch the lawyers So by reporting them for overbilling, he is effectively reporting them for fraud. And according to what they say in the movie, that offense does have some teeth and it will land most of these attorneys in prison for a very long time. Yeah, bring up racketeering charges that can effectively shut down the firm and slow down the mob's progress, but not totally shut them down or get them arrested to the point where they are almost certain to come after Mitch McDeer. 
So why is he doing this? Two reasons according to the film. One, as Robert pointed out, he values his head and he's worried about making these mob bosses angry for reporting their criminal behavior. Two, by only reporting the firm's criminal behavior of overbilling, what he is supposedly doing is preserving the attorney-client privilege by not reporting any information on his clients. That seems very odd to me because the attorney-client privilege has a clear exception to it for future crimes. If you come to a lawyer and say, hey, I just murdered somebody, past tense, I need your help to represent me, the lawyer cannot get on the phone and say, hey, I know who committed this murder, it was this guy, my client, and here's how he did it and when he did it, etc., etc. That is a crime that has been committed in the past. The lawyer has an obligation not to reveal that information to anybody. However, if you go to a lawyer and you say, hey, I'm planning to kill Susie St. James tomorrow at 3 p.m. Who is Susie St. James <laughs> and what did she do to you? <laughs> she's... Uh, well, it's actually kind of a Gilmore Girls. It was, but Asuki St. James is the character from Gilmore Girls. Uh, I may or may not have been watching Gilmore Girls recently. Anyway, if you say I'm going to kill poor, sweet little Suki St. James tomorrow at 3 p.m. in the parking lot with a wrench, <laughs> uh, now we're getting into Clue, the lawyer not only has the ability to report it, but should report it, right? Like you should be getting on the phone and saying, hey, I've got information about a future crime that's going to happen. Now, if the only thing at stake is property and not human life, um, that's you don't have quite as much of a moral obligation to report it, but you still have the right to report it if your services as an attorney are being used to further this crime. So if you're like Saul Goodman and helping them launder the money? Exactly, which is exactly what's going on in the firm here. So you have the complete right as the attorney to say, okay, the attorney-client privilege does not apply here. There is a future crime that this person is trying to commit. They're trying to use my services in the furtherance of it. So I am able to go and report this crime without busting the attorney-client privilege and you know, potentially getting myself reprimanded or disbarred by your whatever state bar you're a part of. So it seems very strange to me that he's like stuck like glue to this attorney-client privilege in this particular circumstance where there is quite a clear exception to it that it seems like he could rely on. I do think in the novel by John Grisham, he did address this, and I actually haven't read the novel, so I'm not sure how he threaded this needle and made it work, but there is an exception that he probably could have relied on. He also should have been talking to his own lawyer about something like that. Yeah, this. I was going to say, get some counsel for yourself, somebody who's an expert in this space. Yeah, I mean, I feel like people have this idea that why would a lawyer ever go and consult a lawyer? Like, you're already a lawyer. Don't you know everything? But the field of law is just massive. There are so many areas that you can specialize in. And he probably had, like, he could have called his old ethics professor at Harvard, who was probably... Yeah, a pretty smart person, I'm guessing. If you're teaching uh, legal ethics at Harvard Law School, you probably know the ins and outs of these kinds of things. He should have gotten some kind of counsel and figured out if he was going to face any trouble. If so, what's it going to look like? But we don't see him do it. 
any of that. Okay. Well, as Tom Cruise would say, or really Cuba Gooding Jr. would say, show me the money. Let's let's go back to this overbilling thing. Yeah. Um, you were talking about timesheets earlier and the, the billable hours and that sort of thing. I know when you watch this, you're just like, I, I don't understand why they would overbill in this way where they have two sets of books. One, the timesheet records from each of the attorneys, and then two, the invoices that are bloated by 10 to 15% for each of the different clients. And they have these two different sets of numbers, which seems totally unnecessary. How does a normal timesheet in a law firm get converted to billing for a customer? What, what would you do if you're trying to run your own overbilling scheme? Well, first of all, I would never do that. Uh-huh. But, I mean, this is what you do as an attorney. You keep time in six-minute increments, right? That's a tenth of an hour. So you keep time in 0.1, 0.2, whatever it might be. So you are keeping a running tally of literally how many minutes you spend on each particular task. And for a heck of a lot of clients, this was probably not as true in 1993, but these days it's very true that many clients want to drill down on your bills like crazy. They are looking for anything that they can possibly say, eh, this seems inflated. Eh, we think you should have only spent half an hour less on this. Or you, you could have only possibly spent two hours on this, not 2.7. And they will just go through and write time off and send it back to you. And it's kind of a negotiation back and forth of, this is how much we're willing to pay. We think this and this and this doesn't quite work. It's not justifiable. So as a lawyer, how you can prevent all of that nitpicking is by being incredibly detailed with your billing. So number one, you're billing in very precise amounts. Number two, you are justifying each and every one of those minutes that you've spent. So you're not just writing like legal research or wrote brief for two hours. Do you bill for the time that you spend writing your billing out? That is kind of a topic for debate. Some lawyers do, some lawyers don't. I erred on the side of not doing it the vast majority of the time. I mean, but look, here is the reality. It is not a perfect science, right? You don't have a stopwatch every time you like cough, sneeze, grab a sip of water? (laughs) I mean, I actually did use something that was very much like a stopwatch on my computer. I had a set of timers that I used, but... Even then, right, people are going to walk into your office, the phone is going to ring, you're going to get up and do something. It is incredibly hard to keep track of every single minute of your day and also exactly what you're doing for, like, I mean, say you are just writing a brief for seven hours that day, you can't just write that down. So what you do is write, like, you know, drafted X number of paragraphs even to, you know, support this particular argument within the brief so they can see like, oh, she was working on this part of the brief. She wasn't just like in this black hole of brief writing where we don't actually know what was going on for seven hours. So you've got to be really, really detailed with it to make it defensible. So your original question, I think, was... Why two sets of books? Yeah. If you're... I think what you're getting to here is that timekeeping is already a bit of an imperfect art. If the whole firm is in on this whole mobster thing, couldn't you just loop them in on the overbilling and just have their timesheets be bloated in the first place and not have dual records that Tom Cruise can go take and send to Ed Harris and see, say, here you go, here's your mail fraud? Yeah, it just seems completely insane to me 
that a firm that's already engaging in like <laughs> massive criminal activity is stupid enough to keep two sets of records, which you can literally set side by side and go, oh, these people are overbilling. <laughs> I mean, just inflate the numbers on the timesheets a little bit if that's what you're going to do instead of keeping two records that make it blatantly obvious what you're doing. Because the sad reality of timekeeping is nobody's looking over your shoulder. So unless your moral fiber is quite strong, it's easy to fall into that temptation of like, well, this took me 0.2, but I'm only at, you know, 8.3 hours for the day. And it sure would be nice if I could get up to nine. So who's going to know if I write down 0.9 instead of 0.2? Anybody? I don't think so. I mean, that... I guarantee you most lawyers in the country have had a moment where they've either done it or they've thought seriously about it. Are, so, is this your confession, Carla? It's not a confession. I don't think I ever did that. Do, do we need to Do we need to turn off the camera? Do we need a moment <laughs> of privacy where you can just air it all out? But I will say that because it's an imperfect science, I feel confident that every lawyer on the planet or anybody who charges by their time has billed for time that they weren't spent like completely focused on your case. It's just the reality of billing by the hour. But you do your darndest and you try really hard. But if these people are already criminals, like at least be a little bit smarter about it. It's just so silly to me that they've got these side-by-side books that's like black and white if anybody looks into this. Which, as I was telling you earlier, that is not outside the realm of possibility, right? You can get your timesheets subpoenaed in all kinds of situations. If you owe attorney's fees to somebody else, your records can get subpoenaed to like drill down and see exactly what was happening. So it's not at all, it would not be crazy for those records to get subpoenaed in some kind of attorney's fees dispute. Well, looks like they were living on the edge. (laughs) Bindini, Lambert, and Locke gambling in more ways than they knew. Okay, well, I had a fun time watching The Firm. It had been a long time since I'd seen it. Uh, Like we said, it was a fun cast of people. I'm excited to come next week and have another episode starring Tom Cruise. So uh, I hope you'll join us then. It's in the works. Yeah, and until next time, um, yeah, if you get an offer that is way above the market rate, I'd ask some pretty serious questions. Yeah, this is just good general life advice in any context, right? If something is too good to be true, do some digging, ask some questions, because very likely it is too good to be true. And if you find yourself in a situation where some legal counsel might be helpful to you, you should talk to a lawyer. Not just yourself. (laughs) And certainly you shouldn't be relying on anything I'm saying here because we're just goofing around. Okay. But uh, yeah. Legal counsel is a, is a good thing. Tom Cruise could have used some of it in this movie, I think. No kidding. All right. Well, thanks, everybody. And uh, until next time, take care.